Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Now, some of you uh, have heard the story about how my family and I first got in Boston on our radar and on our hearts. My wife and I have been, will be married 19 years in August. And for our 10-year, I know, I, I, I actually, my daughter turned 17 on Friday. I'm like, I don't know where time went. So it's gone. Um, but uh, the reason that Boston got on our heart is we took a road trip up the East Coast for our 10-year anniversary back in 2015. And, uh, and I'm one of these people, if you know me, like when I do something like this, like I go all out. Like I meticulously plan. I love this kind of stuff. So I meticulously planned this trip for us because it was a two-week trip all the way up the East Coast into Canada and back and two and a half weeks. And, uh, and so you need to understand that at the time, Amy and I, we had very different understandings of fun. Uh, I'm from Alabama. She's from Alaska. We're very different. Like I like sports and indoors. She likes the outdoors. I think she could like wrestle a bear with her bare hands. Um, and so we have very different ideas of fun. And so on this trip, there had to be lots of compromises. I said, I want to go to a Red Sox game. I grew up a huge baseball fan, had to see Fenway. I wanted to eat food. And if I could go to a sporting event and eat, I was happy. For her, she needed to be outdoors. So what we did is we went up, first trip was to Boston, then we went and camped in the White Mountains, drove up to Quebec City, stood there for a few days, came back and camped in the Green Mountains. And when we were in the Green Mountains, uh, we're camping, and understand that like camping is misery for me. Like I hate camping. Um, I, I'm large, nothing I sleep on feels comfortable. I was sleeping on this inflatable bed that was like a log, and then rain came and I got wet. It's a whole story, another thing. But it's miserable for me. And so we're, we're sitting there and, uh, and we're, we're camping in the green mountains. I'll wake up and I've been using like a bag of socks for pillow. And, and, um, and she's like, Hey, do you want to go on a hike? And there's nothing in this world I want to do less than go on this hike. Uh, but we're on our 10 year anniversary trip. And I'm like, all right, how long is the hike? She said six miles. And I said, wonderful. And so we go on this hike where we're hiking up in the hills. My wife is like sprinting ahead, like a gazelle. She's loving every minute of it. I'm trudging along. And I'm like, there's another stupid turn. And that hill looks steep and this is dumb and then we get to the top of the hill we get to the top of the mountain and it's beautiful it's gorgeous and what I began to realize is there was not a single turn or single hill or single climb that was wasted there's nothing about this seemingly mundane trip that was wasted because the intention the end goal where we were getting was that beautiful and when we read the stories of Jesus in the gospel of John we need to understand that none of these stories are mundane that none of these miracles stand apart on their own. They're all pointing towards something glorious. And that glorious thing that they're pointing toward is Jesus. And we've been talking about this each week, how at the end of John, John gives us the purpose of his gospel, that we would know that Jesus is the Son of God, and that we would believe in him, and that we would have life. And so every single one of these stories is meant to point us to the fact that Jesus is God, and he is the one who gives life. The miraculous, beautiful destination that we land on each week. And last week, we looked at the idea that Jesus is God, and if he is God, he has authority over our lives. So every single one of these stories is meant to point you beyond themselves to the idea that Jesus is that authority. He is that life giver. He's the one that you were meant to adore. And then if he is the one who is the authority of your life, he is God, he can ask you to change. He can ask you to change your life. Now, you and I, we have a hard time with the idea of authority. 
uh, we struggle, particularly if you're a millennial. We grew up not trusting anybody. Uh, we grew up not trusting anyone because we were let down over and over and over again by authority. We've seen abuse of power happen in schools. We've seen abuse of power happen in workplaces, in politics, and sadly, even in churches. And so we have been conditioned to not trust anybody. And we can bring this, this idea of trust even to God. And none of us are verbally saying to God, like, I don't trust you. None of us are saying, I know better than God. But our lives show that we often don't trust him because we come to Jesus and we come to his word and we come to a difficult text and we say, I don't think I'm going to do that. I don't want to believe that. I don't really want to change. And so you and I, to trust authority, really feel like we need an ample, overwhelming amount of, of evidence in order to trust him. And so we often come to Jesus and we'll say things like, God, if you would just give me a sign that this is what I'm supposed to do. God, if you would just give me a sign that this is what I'm supposed to change, if you would just give me a sign that you're real, I'll believe in you. But do you know the problem with that type of faith? Is we always come back wanting another sign. And the reason I know this is because if you look at verse 2, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. The people were coming and they had seen a sign and they just wanted to see one more sign to trust his authority. But if Jesus is God, we need to understand each of these signs is pointing us to the fact that he is the one who's in control, who can demand us to radically reorient our lives around him. And what we find is that when we radically reorient our lives around Jesus, we actually find life. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water, two of the most famous stories in the Bible, are meant to point us toward the life that we are called to live, but it's going to demand that we change. And the first way that the authority of Jesus leads us to life and demands that we change is that Jesus challenges who you are. Jesus will challenge your very identity. And we see this in John 6. And we see at the beginning that he he had went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus had had been ministering in Judea. He travels across the sea. He's trying to get away from the crowds. And the crowds keep following him. They, they see that Jesus has healed the sick. They're desperate. They're longing. They're wanting a word from Jesus. They're wanting a touch from Jesus. And I think what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for coming with the wrong motive. This morning, you may be here for the wrong reason. And that's okay because Jesus will meet your wrong motives and make them right. Jesus meets us in our wrong motives, but he challenges them as well. He challenges us. We, we see that he's gone away with his disciples in verse 3, that he went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. So that says he would recline with them or rest with them. He would spend time with them, I'm assuming, teaching them, helping them get renewed and restored. And we see that as he does so, a crowd begins to gather. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. Now, I need to explain the scene for you here. The, the scene that we're seeing here is not a church service. There's not a lot of order to this. This is like Coachella. This is Woodstock. This is thousands upon thousands of people wandering in the wilderness from place to place following Jesus. It is one giant party of people. People whipped into a frenzy because they've seen what Jesus has done and Jesus has created a spectacle. There's a buzz. These people are willing to do anything. They'll go anywhere. It's like last weekend, the Chiefs fans in Arrowhead, it's negative four degrees. It's like an 843 degree wind chill and they're out there bare chested watching football. That's exactly what's happening here. These people are excited to be there, but it's not just 
what Jesus had been doing, it's when Jesus was doing it. Verse 4 is the key here. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. The Passover was a yearly festival that came with so much excitement because they were celebrating and remembering God's faithfulness to his people to deliver them out of Egypt. Hundreds and thousands of years before, God had delivered the the people of Egypt out of 400 years of slavery, the Hebrew people out of Egypt. And as he delivered them, he did so through the, the sacrifice of a Passover lamb that they were instructed each one of them to sacrifice a lamb and then paint the door of their uh, the doorpost of their doors with blood and that the angel of death would pass over their door, sparing their firstborn child. They remember God's faithfulness as he did this and then led them through the parting of the Red Sea. And each year they would remember this by sacrificing a Passover lamb at the temple, remembering God's faithfulness over them. And this is one of these events where everybody was all in. Everybody was there together. It didn't matter whether you came from the conservative side of Judaism or the liberal side of Judaism, somewhere in the middle. It didn't matter what tribe you were from. You were all on the same page. It's like when the Red Sox win a World Series. Everybody from every town, from Waltham to Dorchester, is there together at the parade. We pray we will win one again um, one day. The, the Passover was their story. Just like on that day, every single one of us are Red Sox fans. This is who they were. They were a proud people. God had delivered them. And their identity was tied up in this nationalistic fervor of what it meant to be, meant to be an Israelite. And every year they would come together and they would remember God's past faithfulness, looking forward and hoping in his future faithfulness, because this was a people who had been under the captivity of other nations for hundreds of years, off and on, and they're praying that someone would come and restore them and free them. And so you need to understand that everything that they did, everything that they thought was shaped by this identity. Everything they did was shaped by this idea of who they thought that they were. The way that they understood the obedience to the law was shaped by that event. We are God's people who were led out of Egypt by his hand. We will trust his law. Every cultural practice that they have was shaped by this. So the way that they're seeing Jesus is through this lens. So in verse 2, when they see these signs happening at the Passover, they're like, maybe he's the one. And so when you look down at verse 14, it says, when the people saw that the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the one that Moses had told about and said, there will be a prophet greater than I to come. Maybe that's him. Verse 15, we see that they tried to make him a king other than the king he came to be, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Didn't matter if Jesus wanted to be the king that they wanted. We want to make him that king to deliver us from political oppression. And notice that Jesus retreats from this. Jesus, into verse 15, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You need to see that every culture shapes people in some way. Every culture shapes us. Right now, the fact that you live in the city of Boston, you're being shaped. Right now, just like like a river running over rocks, shaping those rocks, rocks into their image, you're being shaped into the image of your workplace, of your classroom, of of your university, and there is a spoken or an unspoken vision of the person that you're supposed to be that you're being shaped into. And the way that you think, the experiences that you have are being shaped by these things. I'm I'm an elder millennial, an elderly millennial, uh, born in 1982. 
And I was looking at a list the other day of experiences that people my age have experienced. The fact that I grew up before the internet, but that the internet came onto the scene while I was in junior high. The fact that certain events happened like Challenger and the falling of the Berlin Wall and the end, the end of communism and, and the USSR, uh, the movement from VHS to DVD to, to streaming. You know, There was these things called VHS tapes back in the day. All these things, Saturday morning cartoons, all these things have shaped the way that I think as a millennial and there are people who are my age that have had these exact same experiences. We've been shaped by them. You can apply that to your generation. And so because of that, you have a dominant story that is shaping you and telling you who you are. And it might be a political vision. It might be a left or a right political vision that is shaping the way that you see everything. It could be, uh, it could be sexuality. It could be your gender. It could be your ethnicity. These are not necessarily bad things, but these are things that are shaping you, that load you with all sorts of presuppositions, all sorts of ways that you're seeing the world. And one way that we're seeing the world and actually things that makes it difficult for you and I to read this text is you and I have been trained to not believe that miraculous things happen. We've been conditioned, as Charles Taylor, the philosopher, says, to, to believe that there's nothing beyond what we see. But there's nothing spiritual, there's nothing transcendent that you can only trust what you see and experience and the only truth you can trust is in your heart and in your head. And this actually shapes the way that you see Jesus. If you come to the Bible with a political, or progressive or, or liberal lens, you may look at a story like this and say, man, Jesus can't do this. God can't do things like this because you're bringing in a presupposition that God doesn't do miraculous things. And so you may just look at this story and say, this is just like early socialism. Everybody was sharing their lunch. Or Jesus found a sandbar and just wandered his way through the storm. But look, if he's God, he created the world and he can do whatever he wants to do. You can come at this with a, a conservative lens as well and say, well, you know, this really isn't demanding anything of me that I should share and serve my neighbor. This was an isolated event that Jesus was doing. We need to understand that wherever you fall on the spectrum, Jesus is challenging your identity. He has challenged every person's identity across time and across culture, which means that you are first and foremost not whatever you want to put in the blank. That everything about you must submit to Jesus. And what this actually does is it doesn't erase it. It doesn't erase your gender. It doesn't erase your ethnicity. It actually shapes those things for godliness. Jesus shapes you as a woman made in the image of God or a man made in the image of God. He knows what ethnicity and country you were born into and that you can glorify him out of that, how God has uniquely made you. Your vocation, your job is not who you are, but a means to make much of Jesus. But sometimes Jesus really challenges your identity. There may be desires that feel like they are wrapped around your soul and it would feel like death to have those things removed. But what you actually find is that your truest self, your truest joy comes in knowing Jesus and allowing him to shape who you are. Even if that means dying to yourself. Because the crazy upside down nature of the kingdom of God is that when you let go of what you hold most dear, that's where you find greater life in him. And particularly for people who would describe themselves as self-sufficient. This, this passage, this entire passage, is just a gut punch if you're a self-sufficient person. You come to a story like the feeding of the 5,000, and they go, man, I don't know what it's like to not have enough resources. But it can be a severe mercy for the person who struggles to be in control to realize that God will put you in a place where you realize that you're not in order to draw you to himself. So Jesus is willing to challenge who you are, 
But secondly, he changes what you desire. The crowd comes to Jesus. And actually what's fascinating about this is that there are only two miracles in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of those is the resurrection. That's a big one. We should definitely have that in all four. The other is the feeding of of the 5,000. There's something about this that, that God wanted to get across to us, across different perspectives. And what's beautiful is if you cross-reference the different accounts of the, of the feeding of the 5,000, you get some details that you don't see here in John 6. When people came looking for signs, looking for Jesus to do something uh, great, to heal them, we see that Jesus actually saw through that need to their real need. He saw them as lost, hurting, and hungry. And then we saw in Matthew that he had compassion upon. Jesus actually sees beyond your surface desires to what you really want. That there's something deep in your soul that needs to be satisfied. And so in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, Jesus asks Philip, he says to him, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Where, where can we buy bread? He asks Philip because Philip would know better than anyone else. He's from Bethesda. He's from the area. And, and it's kind of like me. Like if you come to this church and I find out that you just moved to Boston, some of you have been attacked this way, and I'm sorry. I'm going to recommend four places to eat and three places to get coffee because I, 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 that's like my love language. I want you to enjoy good food and drink. In the same way, he's coming to Philip and he's saying, where are the food trucks? Where are the best empanadas? Where can we get some food for our friends? And we see that in verse 6 that Jesus is actually testing Philip to see what kind of faith Philip has because Jesus already knew what he was going to do. And in verse 7, Philip answers very practically. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 200 denarii would be about eight months' salary. Eight months' salary would not be enough to give everyone a single bite. 5,000 men, that's the way they would have recorded it then, which likely would have meant that with women and children, somewhere between 12 and 20,000 people. In other words, it is impossible. We don't have enough money. We couldn't scrounge enough, enough out of the couches or borrow from our grandmothers. Like, we could not get enough money to feed these people. It is impossible. What's the point if we can't fulfill the need? And I think that's why we often settle for lesser joys over the joy that Jesus promises Because in our minds, we think what he provides is never going to be enough. He can't actually make me happy. He'll he'll never be enough for me. So what we do is we settle. I'm just going to go to work. I'm going to try to make enough money. I'm going to try to find a good relationship. I'm just going to make the best of life and do the best that I possibly can and eat just enough because I don't think he's going to come through for me. But we see that he does. And that he blesses some very, very small faith in verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, verse 9, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Here Andrew goes and steals a little boy's Lunchable and tries to say, what's this going to do? And honestly, this is about the equivalent. We need to understand that barley was the bread of the poor. It was the bread of poor people. Uh, We had a discussion in our community group this last week about toaster strudels. And how you knew if you grew up in a house with toaster strudels, you were rich. I was a Pop-Tart family. Uh, we went to a friend's house that had toaster strudels. We, man, I knew they had money. This, this kid comes with his Pop-Tarts, his, his little barley biscuits, and a couple of sardines. And when Matt Chandler says, you see this little flicker of faith for a second, because he's like, hey, Jesus, here's a, here's a couple of biscuits and a couple of fish, and then you just see the faith fade away. But, but what good is this going to do? And Jesus says to them, he says, have them sit down, verse 10. 
Now, there was much grass in the place. Now, does that sound familiar about sitting down on a patch of grass? Psalm 23, 1 through 2, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And the next verse says that he restores my soul. Jesus makes us sit down in green places to restore us, to satisfy us. And we see in verse 11 that he distributed them so that those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. He he filled them. He satisfied them. As they sat and received from the Lord, they were satisfied and no one was left hungry. Jesus multiplied this meager meal to show that he is generous and that he'll satisfy our souls. And what it shows us is that if you're truly going to be satisfied in Jesus, you got to give up that meager meal you've been trying to feed yourself on. Um, Look, those little biscuits and those sardines weren't enough to feed that little boy, much less 5,000, 20,000 people. What is that meager thing that you're trying to satisfy your soul with? Sex makes a really, really meager meal. It pales in comparison to the intimacy that Jesus promises. You can't feed yourself with power because there will always be someone or something more powerful than you. You can't feed yourself with control because you can't control everything. You will be put in place with life and something you can't control. A relationship will never feed your soul because it can't satisfy the eternity that your soul is made for. Take that meager meal and put it in the hands of Jesus and you begin to see what Alistair Begg says that Jesus is saying that without him, without feeding on him, men and women starve eternally. Because Jesus has always been the provider who satisfies our souls. And he he ties this back to the Passover because the Passover was about fulfillment. And it says as Jesus blessed the food, it was likely that he said the traditional Jewish blessing was read like this, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. We trust that God is going to bring forth bread and satisfaction for us, for what we want most. And when you begin to see that Jesus is the only one who can truly satisfy you, he begins to change your desires, to desi- not to desire lesser joys, but to desire him. It'll truly satisfy you, but to get that, you have to let go, you have to sit down, you have to receive from him. Now, as Jesus retreats away, we see the story begin to shift. Jesus doesn't just change what we want, he also comforts you when you fear. We see these two stories are actually connected of the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water. And, and this is such an interesting part of the story. Jesus drew away in verse 15. He goes to be away by himself. Verse 16, it said, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. We see in Matthew's account that Jesus had actually sent them away. Uh, he said he would dismiss the crowd and go be alone. And then in verse 17, they got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. So they've left Jesus for some reason. I guess Jesus has found another way across, and it's now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to him. So they get in the boat, they start to go across the water, and we see in verse 18 that the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, we need to understand this. They did not have the same view of the ocean as you and I. You and I, we love the ocean. Peter did not have the ocean fixes everything wall hanging in his house. He didn't have that. He didn't have seashells everywhere. For us, if you go to the beach, you're one of, maybe you're one of the people who just loves the beach. You, you love putting your toes in the sand. You'll find sandbars. You'll swim with dolphins. That was not the Hebrew people. That was not ancient people. They were terrified of the ocean. 
because the ocean representing chaos. You look at mythology and the kraken, the giant squid that would destroy ships. That's what they imagined when they thought of the ocean. Because going out onto the open water meant death. You're going out on the open water and and a storm arises, it's over. I mean, it's, it's just thousands of feet to the bottom of the ocean floor. And so as they're there and the wind picks up, they're convinced they're gonna die. Because if you look at the shape of the Sea of Galilee, they're three to four miles out and all of a sudden they see Jesus. They see Jesus walking on the water. Now, understanding this from the other gospel accounts, they weren't at first comforted because they thought they'd seen a ghost. And do you know what they thought that ghost was coming to do? Collect their souls and take them to Hades. They thought it was over. And by the way, this is a rebuttal to those thinking that Jesus walked by the sea, which is walking on the shore, because the Sea of Galilee was 13 miles long by five miles wide, which means that they were two and a half miles from the nearest shore, which means they're not going to even be able to see the shore in a storm. And the reaction was that, wow, Jesus looks like he's taking a stroll in this weather. They're like, no, we're going to die. There's a ghost in the water, I'm freaking out, and we're going to die. When you and I are afraid, that's what it feels like. There's no getting out. There's no turning back. There's no turning to the side. And it seems impossible to get where we actually want to go. And you may be in the middle of something this morning that feels like death. You look out, and you can't turn back. You're too far gone, and you have no clue how you're going to get to the other side in one piece. And this creates fear, and this creates anxiety, and this creates doubt in our hearts. And I want to give you, a, first of all, a few wrong options on dealing with your fear, your anxiety, and your doubt in the midst of a storm. The first is just to bury it. We have a tendency, if you, especially if you grew up in America, we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, we work hard, we shove it deep down. We had a speaker um, uh, last summer uh, named Ed Marcel. He said he's half Irish, which means that he just never talks about his emotions. Like they've repressed them for 800 years. That's what most of us do. We repress all of our struggles. I can't tell anybody I'm afraid. I can't show weakness. I can't show that I'm anxious. I can't admit that I have doubts. You don't have to pretend. What did Jesus tell us to do when we were afraid? He says, come to him. Come to me who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When we're commanded to not be anxious, that's an invitation to a restful soul. So you don't have to bury those things, but you also don't have to buy into them. You don't have to buy into your fear. You don't have to buy into your anxiety. You don't have to buy into your doubt. We can get so whipped up into a frenzy that all we see is that we're afraid. That all we see is our anxiety, that all we see is our doubt, and we lose sight of the Lord who's right there on the water with us. And I want to encourage you, particularly if you're someone who's doubting, is that our doubts have a way of telling us that they're the only thing in control. Our doubts have a way of telling us that they're the only things that are unchanging. And so we come to our doubts and we say, okay, doubts, you're sovereign. So everything that I look at in God's word, I'm not sure if it's even true because I doubt that God is true. I want to encourage you to doubt your doubts. Your doubts are not sovereign. God is sovereign. And And what happens when you doubt your doubts is you begin to find solid ground to stand upon Jesus and trust him with your doubts. Because the answer for us is the same as it was for the disciples, verse 20, is that we have to look at Jesus he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Every time in the Bible that God told people not to be afraid, he was with them. 
Every time that God said, do not be afraid, he revealed himself. He gave his presence to them. So what Jesus does for you and I in our fear and our anxiety and our doubt is he dispels them by telling us and reminding us who he is. He's there, he's with us. Matt Chandler says that you and I are not promised a life of ease, but a life of presence. God never promised that you were going to go through this life unscathed. We live in a broken world that is full of sickness and death and injustice and poverty and struggle. We were never promised that we're going to be free of those things. We were promised that there is going to be a God who will be with us in the midst of them and who is an answer for them ultimately one day. Jesus is with you in the middle of life's storms. And verse 21 is an invitation to receive him with gladness. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And then we see another miracle at the end of the verse. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. They were at the shore. They made the rest of the distance, probably 10 miles, in the blink of an eye. Jesus is going to see you through. But you have to understand this. You can't just have Jesus come and take away your fear. You can't just have Jesus come and take away your anxiety. You can't just have him come and take away your doubts unless he gets in the boat with you. He has to be the one who's guiding you to the shore. He has to be the one who leads you, the one who can demand that you change. Now, as we close, I just want to give you some principles that Jesus offers for what I want to call a Godward life, a life that's pointing toward him. So if all of these signs are pointing toward Jesus, we need to live lives that are pointing toward Jesus. So lastly, Jesus communicates principles for a Godward life. Four, four ideas. First of all, time alone with the Lord is vital. Time with God is vital for you to grow as a follower of Jesus, for you to live a life that's pointing toward him. We see in this passage that Jesus twice draws away to be with the Father, once with other people and once by himself. For many of us, we're trying to run the life that God has called us to run on empty because we're not spending time and being fueled up by him. I read this this verse to our our deacons and our elders last week in our meeting, Proverbs 14, verse 30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. That word tranquil can also be translated as healing. As we spend time alone with the Lord, he actually gives us a quiet heart. He gives us a heart that's learning to heal and to grow and points toward him. So I want to challenge you that if you want to live a life that's being reoriented around Jesus, you got to spend some time with him. Secondly, even small faith matters. Even small faith matters. Jesus doesn't crush Andrew for this small, fleeting faith. He actually uses Andrew's faith in order to glorify his name. And what we see is that weak faith is saving faith if the object of your faith is strong. What saves you is not how hard you believe. What saves you is the fact that Jesus is faithful. That Jesus is faithful to save you. And we actually model this as we take communion, which we'll do in a little bit, because in communion, what we're actually saying is, God, my faith is weak. Give me strength. I come with all my mess, all my brokenness, all my sin, weak before you, asking you to strengthen me. Even small faith matters. This morning, if you're clinging to small faith, trust that Jesus will multiply that. Thirdly, even small offerings can be effective. The meager offering of five barley biscuits and a couple of fish, Jesus multiplies. And when you think about the the offerings and the gifts that we bring to the table to live the life that God's called us to live, not just individually, but as a church, as we imagine what God has called us to do, to see every person from every culture experience the gospel, to see people in our city go from death to life, we're asking God to do something that we cannot do with our meager gifts. 
That's something God's going to have to multiply, and he's faithful to do because he empowers us for this work. And then lastly, the goal is always deeper dependence. The goal of God's work in you is always deeper dependence upon him, and he may do that through challenging your very identity. This morning, you may think that your identity is wrapped in something else other than Jesus, and you need to submit it to him. He may do that through changing what you desire. You may say there is something in your life that you just can't let go of that seems to have a grip on you. He will change your desires to make you want him more. And lastly, God is loving and faithful enough to bring you to a place of fear, a place of anxiety, a place of dependence, so that you look to him alone and find life, that you reorient your life around it.